always kind of fascinated me because, you know, growing up in church, you hear these stories and you just scratch your head and go, I, I don't know how that worked. Josiah was handed the throne of Judah at the age of eight. Eight. I've got an eight-year-old son. He's not ready to be the king. <laughs> He's not. Um, um, sometimes him and I will be in here alone and he'll come up here with his Bible and he'll set it down on the pulpit. And his little head doesn't even come up over the pulpit. And I'll say to him, all right, Pastor Matthew, what are you preaching for us tonight? He's like, I don't have any idea. And we're talking about preaching a sermon, not running a, not running a kingdom. And those that uh, know about how things work, it has been speculated, and I would say this is probably true. There was probably a board of people that ran the country. He just held the position because someone had to hold it. And when he probably turned 18 or 21 or some age of adulthood, they turned the kingdom over to him. And so um, here you have uh, Zephaniah. He's prophesying during the early years of Josiah's reign. So probably back before Josiah could even call the shots. Technically, he's the king, but he's not really calling the shots. Now, uh, you go over to Second Kings. We're not going to look at it in detail tonight. I'll just tell you about it. But uh, an interesting study is Second Kings 22 and 23. I'd write that down. Go back and study it. You want to talk about true repentance you want to talk about uh, the king that, that made the most drastic change in the country? Boy, it was King Josiah. King Josiah one day told uh, some of his uh, men, he said, I want you to repair the house of the Lord. Now, uh, they the, the country had gotten so far away from God, they didn't know what the Torah was anymore. They didn't know what the Passover was anymore. They had used the temple of the Lord to set up other idolatrous uh, uh, items around. And they were going into the temple to bow down to idols, but they weren't worshiping God anymore. He had totally gone by the wayside. And so uh, they're cleaning up the temple and they're trying to repair it. And they find the Torah or the Bible, the Old Testament that had been written at that point. And they bring it to Josiah and they say, we found this strange book. And he said, well, what is it? And he said, well, the priest says that uh, our country used to follow this. And he said, well, start reading it to me. So they start reading it to him, and he realizes, oh, my goodness, we have gotten so far away from this thing. The God of this book is going to judge us. And he tears his clothes, he puts ash on his head, and he sends the men that have, he sends the, the uh, priests there with this Torah to go see this woman who is a prophetess in a college, and she uh, tells them, yes, this country has just turned away from God and uh, has served idols and it is in great distress. And uh, because of that, God is going to judge this country greatly, but he sees the heart of your king and he's going to wait till your king is in the grave. So what did Josiah do? They came back and told him that he called all the people together. And he began to read the Bible, read the Torah in their presence. And they fell on their face and they began to repent. And then he got serious about it. He not only took care of business in Judah, he actually traveled up to Bethel, where Assyria had already taken over, I believe, by this time. And he begins to dig up the bones of the people who had led the country in idolatrous worship. And he begins to burn their bones. 
He wasn't just turning over the idols and killing off the priests that were leading the country in strange worship. He was digging up graves and he was burning bones of old people. He was totally cleaning house. And the Bible says in 2 Kings 23 that there was not a king before him nor after him that turned their heart to the Lord at the same level that he did. What an incredible study. If you want to talk about uh, dealing with past generational sins and trying to set up the future uh, for success, Josiah is a great character to study. Now, uh, we know that he did a, a good thing and he was a good king. The Bible tells us in Second Kings 22, from the day he was uh, took reign until the end, but he actually died by a very prideful move. Second Chronicles chapter 35, verses 20 through 25, we find the account of his death. And uh, God had sent another king in to invade and he rose up against this king and that king said to him, he said, hey, knock it off. He said, you don't understand what you're doing here. Uh, God has sent me to do this. And he said, I don't think so. So he continues on in battle and Josiah, King Josiah is killed in his pride. From there, another king, uh, his son was installed. That son was immediately killed by the Egyptians. And then the Egyptians took uh, what, what would have been uh, the uh, the nephew of Josiah and placed him in onto the throne. So uh, you ask, uh, uh, or rather I'm posing the question, where did Zephaniah prophesy? Well, he prophesied in the southern kingdom. Uh, when did he prophesy? He prophesied during the beginning of Josiah's uh, reign. And then to whom did Zephaniah prophesy? Well, he prophesied to the princes of Israel. Um, uh, those would have been his peers. Remember, we said that he was King Hezekiah's great-grandson. And so now he's prophesying to his peers. He goes after the princes pretty hard in chapter 2. We'll look at that here in a minute. Uh, he also prophesies against Judah as a whole, and he prophesied against all of the surrounding countries uh, that had risen up in uh, rebellion. And so I, uh, Israel had a problem of copying the sins of the countries around them. They would look at the sins of the countries around them and they would try to bring them in and mimic them. They would try to worship all the same gods. They would try to dress the same way. They would try to act the same way. And so he would, um, uh, here we find Zephaniah very strongly addresses those things. Uh, Judah was filled with uh, uh, injustices and idolatry. Injustices and idolatry. And they thought because they had mounted great stockpiles of silver and gold. They thought that because uh, they had uh, they they had uh, uh, taken advantage of the poor and they had all these idols in place for all these years that somehow they were going to be okay. Everyone else is doing it and getting away with it. Surely we can do it and get away with it. And Zephaniah stands up and says, "Not so fast. The day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near." Number one, let's jump in here to the outline and notice a reversal of the Genesis creation. A reversal of the Genesis creation. So, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, what do you find? God creates everything, right? Well, God's going to uncreate, or God's rather going to destroy everything. And the language kind of gets the idea that, hey, this is the creation process going backwards. Look at verse 2 of Zephaniah chapter 1. It says, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume, here we go in backwards, the fowl of the heaven and the fishes of the sea. Didn't he create those at the same time? And the stumbling blocks from the wicked. And I will cut off from off the land, saith Lord. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant 
uh, of Baal from this place in the name of the uh, Chimerims, uh, with uh, with the priest and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops and them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm and them that are turned back from the Lord and those that have not sought the Lord and inquired for him. He's saying here, you want to worship creation, I can take it away. I can take it away. You want to worship the, the, the creation more than the Creator. I, I am the Creator. I can take away the creation whenever I want. So we see here that God, through Zephaniah, is promising that I'm going to come in and I'm going to destroy the very things that you worship because you're not worshiping me. Number two, we see the sinful rituals of God's people. The sinful rituals of God's people. Now, these are God's chosen people, the Israelites. Um, let me take a minute here and address something about the Israelites. Now, the Israelites have a history of straying away from their God and being an, uh, uh, an adulterous uh, people. When I say adulterous, I don't mean like the husbands and wives are running around each other. I mean corporately as a nation, they stray away from being faithful to their God. That's what I mean by idolaters. Um, but God still promised back in Genesis 12... To Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. Now, um, you have those moments um, in life, politically speaking, where you step back and go, wow, that was a big deal. That was a big deal. And our president declaring Jerusalem to be the capital of uh, Israel, and then claiming he's going to move the embassy, and we'll see if it happens. All right, I believe, I hope, I'm hopeful it will. That's a big deal. I will bless them that bless thee. Now, is um, Israel the beacon of perfection and righteousness in the world? No, no. We know that Jesus will return, uh, the rapture will happen, and at the rapture, 144,000 Jews will realize, hey, wait a minute, we have this wrong. They're going to get saved, and they're going to go all over the world and preach. Probably many of them are alive right now, living in Jerusalem, living in Israel, and really all over the world there. But um, God said He would bless them that bless thee. From a spiritual standpoint, and uh, I won't get into the political side of things tonight, because that's not really my role, but from the spiritual standpoint, i got to say I am thrilled to death that our president has declared Jerusalem uh, officially the capital of Israel and is recognizing them as a political power and a nation in the world. That is a big deal. But here in Zephaniah, these Israelites, these Judeans rather, uh, they are living in a way that is wicked and they're uh, they're doing it in a way uh, that is wrong. Look at uh, letter A, notice their wicked examples. Their wicked examples. Look at uh, chapter 1 and verse number 8. It says there, And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the... What's that next word? Princes. Princes. And the king's children. Now, Zephaniah is a prince and a king's child. Okay? So he's talking to his peers here. Now look what he says why he's going to punish them. And all such as are clothed with strange apparel. All such that are clothed with strange apparel. Um, he's saying here that these, uh, these princes and these children of the king, they are leading the rest of the country to do things that are wicked. 
they're being wicked examples. And we've talked about this a couple of times in a couple of different services, but you got the 10% that are trying to pull a, a, a people group in the wrong direction. They're being malicious and intentional about it. you got 10% over here that are standing up for what's right. They're being uh, vocal about it, and they're standing up against that crowd over there, and that crowd is standing up against that crowd over there, and then you got the 80% in the middle, Right? And so, uh, here, what uh, Zephaniah is doing is he's addressing that crowd over there. He's saying, you all carry influence. I remember, uh, as a small boy, Charles Barkley was a big deal. He's a basketball player. And Charles Barkley was making some very poor decisions with his life. And uh, there was a, a, a reporter that asked Mr. Barkley, he said, uh, uh, "Why? how can you behave in such a way when you are a role model to so many? How many of you remember this? Mr. Barkley said... I am not a role model. And to that I would say, yes, Mr. Barkley, whether you want to be a role model, you're a role model. You're a role model. LeBron James may not want to be a role model. LeBron James is a role model. I mean, understand this. Um, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, they may not want to be role models. They're role models. Now, why anybody would want to follow Tom Brady uh, is beyond me. I mean... He's a cheater, right? No. Amen. All right. Got, got, it was getting quiet here. Thanks for helping me out there. I got darts coming from back that side of the auditorium this direction. So you know, be careful what I say here. Um, you know, I have a church split. Uh, but, um, um, yeah, this area here, right. Um, the king's children and the princes, they were leaders in the country. They may not have wanted to have been. But they were. And look here what the Bible says in verse 8. Zephaniah points to their clothing. Points to their clothing. It says there uh, in the end of the verse, And all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Now, when uh, the, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge go walking out, there are people that really care about that. You know why? Because they're royalty. Some people set trends by what they wear, such as the case here. I've got to say that it matters what you wear. Now, I'm not going to harp on this a long time, but let me have your attention. All right? I'm not going to get real specific, so nobody needs to get nervous. But God has commanded modesty. And that's not just for women. That goes for us men, too. Men, nobody wants to see your hairy legs in the summertime. Don't wear those short shorts. It's nasty. You don't need to be wearing skinny jeans. Amen, Brother Kyle? You got some cleaning out to do. No, I'm just teasing. Ladies, um, here's the truth, all right? If I'm driving, if, if, ladies, okay, if you're driving down the road and there's a guy with his shirt off cutting the grass, you're probably going to vomit in your mouth and swallow it. Because we're ugly. We just are. If there's a lady cutting her grass in her underwear, there's going to be a pile up in the ditch. Because the men won't be able to take their eyes off. It's just reality. God created the woman to be a beautiful creature. Be a beautiful creature. He did that so there would be babies in the world. We all understand this. We're adults in the room. But ladies, God gave you your body... To show to a husband 
and only to your husband and not to anybody else. Timothy commands that, you, that the ladies be modest. And so I understand that that word modesty is subjective to the reader. My advice to you would be, if you're married, make sure that he thinks you're modest. If your husband checks off that you're modest, then that's a good place to be. If you're not married, find an adult man such as a father or uh, someone else in your life who can help you with that and talk to him about it. Make sure that you're modest. I will address modesty in, in greater detail in the spring as I do once a year. But don't dress in a way that is provocative. Don't dress in a way that is wrong. You say, well, I'm not a prince or a king. No, but there are people who are watching you. And so you dress accordingly. Letter B, notice, there are worldly expressions. There are worldly expressions. Now, look at verse 9 there with me. It says there, In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold and will fill their master's house with violence and deceit. So these people, they're, uh, they're leaping on the threshold. They're filled, uh, they filled the master's house with violence and deceit. So not only are there these wicked examples of coming out of the palace, but now you have these people, they love violence. They love deceit. And I'll just say here that we live in a day and age where uh, we are desensitized to violence. We're desensitized to it. Uh, video games that have people walking around, uh, you can shoot their heads off and people die and come back to life and zombie games and zombie shows and we live in a society where death is glorified. And I gotta say inside the Bible, if you read it and really get the heartbeat of God on this topic, uh, loving violence is not a good thing in scripture. It just didn't. You ought not love it. You ought not glorify it. You ought not make a big deal out of it. You ought not make a big deal about death. And so um, uh, uh, while we're all on some level desensitized to violence, I saw some statistics years ago that talks about how many times uh, by, by the age 18, uh, someone reaches the age 18, how many times they've seen someone die on a television screen. It is some astronomically high number. And we're desensitized to that. But here the Bible says that they were filled with violence and deceit, deceit, that lying, that regular lying. And God looks down at His people. He sees that every imagination of their thought is only evil continually, uh, to quote Genesis 6-5 there. And He says, I see wicked examples, I see worldly expressions. Number three, we see the rage that God would show. The rage that God would show. God does not let sin just go. Now, he may not punish it like right then. But trust me, in God's timing, He gets you. Um, I think about an atheist who climbed up on a tree stump and he said, God, if you're real, strike me dead right now. The man stepped off the tree stump and he didn't get struck dead. He said, see, I told you there was no God. An old preacher walked up to him and he said, sir, you're not taking into account the patience that God has for your soul. The patience that God has for your soul. Um, this isn't one of those deals where you sin and you do this. Because God's going to wait when you're not looking. Letter A, notice against Jerusalem. Now, I want you to look at uh, something very carefully here. Look at verse number 12 with me. And it shall come to pass at that time that... 
I will search out Jerusalem. We'll search Jerusalem. I have the word I circled in my Bible. That I will search Jerusalem. Later down in the verse it says, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. Look at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. The end of the verse, The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. The day, uh, that day, verse 15, is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. Now, who would be the army, that the apocalyptic type army, that would come in and wipe out the Judeans? If you guys have been paying attention on Wednesday nights, Brother Mark, you're not allowed to answer. Who would be that army that would come in, wipe out the Judeans? Someone shouted out at me here. Babylonians. The Babylonians. Notice the Babylonians aren't mentioned anywhere in the book of Zephaniah. Do you know why? Because Zephaniah is making the point that it isn't about a man-made army that's going to come in and wipe you out. It's God using this army. It's God that punishes. Now, He may use a different tactic. He may use a person to punish you. He may use a, a, a set of circumstances that don't look like they come from God. But my friend, God will be the one that punishes His child when they do wrong. So we see here that the day of the Lord is near. You all are choosing your sin. God's going to punish. Letter B. We see here uh, against the nations, against the nations. So not only is uh, the rage, not only is God going to show rage against Jerusalem, but God's going to show His rage uh, against uh, the, uh, the the nations. Look at chapter two there, and really this is what chapter two is about, or all the other nations. Down in verse 4 it says, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted out. So you have Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron mentioned right there in verse number 4. Uh, uh, let's see here. On down further in the chapter you find Moab, and Amnon, and Ethiopia, and Assyria. And we know from history that all of these countries would be wiped out by the Babylonians. So not only was God going to use the Babylonians to bring Jerusalem into captivity, God was going to bring the Babylon, use the Babylonians to bring all these other nations who have halted, been uh, raised up in a haughty spirit against uh, Jerusalem. He's going to punish them as well. Now, interestingly enough, God uh, uh, uses Zephaniah to address Jerusalem in chapter one. And then he addresses these other nations in chapter 2. And then he circles back around after he mentions these countries. And he gets Jerusalem again. So letter C is against Jerusalem. Again. Again. So God's going to punish Jerusalem. He's going to punish all these other countries. Then he comes back and says, God's going to punish Jerusalem! Exclamation point. It is almost as though God was saying that, I don't even know who you are anymore. I don't even know who you are anymore. Now, how far gone do you have to be as a people group to have forgotten your history? You don't know that, that the Lord parted the Red Sea for you? And, and you don't know why the Passover was performed and what it was about? And you don't know what the Torah is? 
Remember all those things we talked about in the introduction about Josiah? How that he had to revisit these things and relearn these things and reteach them to the people? Zephaniah is writing a little prior to that. And he's saying to them, he's saying, you don't know God anymore. Well, God is going to act as though He doesn't know you anymore either. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. So not only are they filthy, the Israelites, not only are they polluted, the Judeans, they are an oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not corruption. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are Evening wolves, they gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I have made their streets waste, that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man, uh, that there is none, uh, there, there, there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou wilt fear me, thou wilt receive instruction, so their dwelling shall not be cut off, how, uh, howsoever I punish them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. So, God starts with Jerusalem, He talks about all the nations in chapter 2, He circles back around to talk about how wicked the leaders of, Israel, of Jerusalem were, and how He's going to punish them again. And then we come to verse number 8. Look at verse 8 there. Therefore, uh, uh, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I raise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation. I, I would underline that. To pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire. There is again, fire of my jealousy. And so he's gonna, he's gonna, uh, pour down his wrath upon Jerusalem. Let me go on to number four and then quickly on to number five. Notice number four, the refuge from God's wrath. The refuge from God's wrath. I, I really do see a lot of parallels between, uh, uh, Jerusalem and the status they were in here in America where we are now. I really see a lot of parallels. We're an idolatrous country. We worship, uh, things and we worship ourselves. More than we worship God. And i got to say, there's a whole lot of people that go to church. And the truth is, even some people that go to church, they worship their things and they worship themselves more than they worship God. You say, well, how do you know that? Because if it push comes to shove and they've got to choose between God, themselves, or things, they're going to choose themselves or things before God. And I don't believe that's any of you here tonight, although I would say search your own heart. You're here on a Wednesday night. Listen, you've made a sacrifice to be here. Most of you have worked all day. You're tired and you drag yourself into church. And i got to say that you're here out of uh, character and love for God. And praise the Lord for that. But can I say that you live like I do in this country. And this country is turning its back on God. It's turning its back on God. And God is going to pour His wrath out on this country. You say, well, what do I do? Well, turn back to chapter 2. Look at verse 3 with me. What do I do? I believe that this is a great verse that applies to Christians that live in America that want to avoid the wrath of God. It says, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness, 
seek meekness. It may be, it may be, ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. How do you avoid the Lord's wrath? How do you avoid His rage that He's going to pour down on our country? Seek ye the Lord. Be the meek of the earth. Um, seek righteousness. Seek meekness. And that is that refuge. That's that hiding place from God's wrath. That's that hiding place. I think about Elijah. I think Elijah is a great example of this. You remember Elijah walked into old Ahab's throne room and he said, It will not rain until I say. And you know what? There were many Israelites that experienced that drought. But you know, Elijah didn't. Elijah had water at the brook Cherith, and then he got moved over to the widow's house where there was food and drink for him. He was hidden in the cleft of God's refuge while the rest of the country was punished. There will come a day where God punishes this country. And I can't promise you that it won't indirectly affect you. I can't even promise you it won't directly affect you. The Bible says here it may be. It may be. There is a chance that you can escape that rage, but you better be seeking the Lord. You better be seeking righteousness. You better be seeking meekness. And you better be living in that manner if you want that chance to be hidden in that day of God's wrath. Number five, notice the reason for God's punishment. The reason for God's punishment. Chapter 3 through verse eight, 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 rather verse eight through the end of the chapter, it talks about there how that God is going to pour out His wrath. Again, the end of verse eight, it says there with the fire of my jealousy. I tell you what I read. Well, I tell you when I read this, what I think. God's going to line them up, and He's going to He's going to pull out a flame torch. He's going to pull that sucker out with a big tank on His back. He's just going to light them up. When I think of fire, I think of it accomplishing one of two things. The first one is just total destruction. Anybody here following the, uh, the wildfires out in California? Wow, ugly, isn't it? You know what those fires do? They destroy everything in their path. Everything in their path. I'm curious here. Has anybody ever had their house burned down ever in their life? Anybody here? Wow, statistically, that's odd that we have no one here ever to have their house burned down. Good job. I hope that that doesn't happen to any of you. Amen? Uh, but uh, a house burns down and destroys everything. And so verse 8 would seem to indicate that that's the purpose of God's fire here. To destroy. But that's not the reason. The second reason for fire is to purify, isn't it, Brother John? It's to purify. God's wrath, God's rage, God's fire here is not meant to destroy the nations. It's meant to purify the nations. Look at verse 20. And verse 9 down through verse 20 covers this concept. Actually, look at verse 9 first. It says, and this this is where the whole chapter pivots. The whole, really, the whole book pivots. For then will I turn to the people a pure language. There's that word purity, that purification. That they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. Now, just seven verses earlier, Zephaniah is talking about how that the judges are wolves. How nasty the nation is. How that God's going to pour out His fire. He's going to judge the nations with fierce anger. And then he turns around in verse 9 and says, I'm going to return people to me that are of a pure language. I'm going to return people to me uh, that want to serve me with one consent. Verse 20, at that time will I bring you again, even in the time. That I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise 
among all the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Now, we know that uh, God is going to take the nations, those that have honored Him, the broken and the, the, the maimed and the hurt. He's going to bring them in during the millennial reign of Christ. And Jerusalem will be that holy city that God rules from. That God rules from. Here, the Bible is saying that God uh, rules. He's a perfect balance of two things. And I would encourage you to put this on the bottom of your notes. He's a perfect balance of two things. Judgment and love. Judgment and love. And that God does. God uh, uh, uses those two things for two, uh, uh, for two very... Uh, rather, He uses those two things for the same reason, but He goes about them in different ways. He uses His judgment. Uh, uh, he judges because He is passionate about rescuing the world from evil and violence. He judges because he is passionate about rescuing the world from evil and violence. He loves because he wants to create a world of safety and peace. Safety and peace. God judges with his fierce anger. But then he comes behind with his love and he heals. And he brings that safety and peace. Tonight, I would encourage you to be a balance of judgment and love with those in your life that you oversee. Yes, there's time to judge. Come down hard. Let's make sure that we're loving, we're loving in our efforts as well. The reason for God's punishment, oh, it's not destruction, it's purification. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Lord, I pray you'd help us tonight to understand the Bible study. Help us to understand the book of Zephaniah a little bit better. And God, uh, shortly after Zephaniah preached this uh, hard message, these poems, rather, Hebrew poems were, were, uh, were, written down, Josiah did lead the country to a short-term revival. And I'm left to wonder if Zephaniah's message didn't have some influence on Josiah. I'm left, to, I'm left to wonder if there wasn't a direct connection. We'll find that out when we get to heaven. But Lord, I pray that we would turn our hearts to seek you. Whether or not the rest of the country does, may we be people who are righteous, that seek righteousness and seek meekness. May we be people that don't look to the world and their examples. But Lord, we turn to you and we fix our eyes on you. Help us tonight with this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed, nice closed. The piano begins to play. The altar is open. How about it tonight, Christian? Are you following the Lord or do you have your eyes on the world? Are you caught up on the worldly examples, watching them, following them, studying them? Are there worldly expressions in your life? Are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking His righteousness? Are you seeking His meekness, that power under control? Why don't we fine-tune and search our heart while the piano plays?